Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be our first show for the season. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about our shows, we've been actually recording them as we go, as we usually do, but we're actually taking them and making them sort of a permanent kind of a fixture. This semester, as I talked about during the orientation this morning, what we're doing now is we're making them so that uh, not this show, but like, for example, in the past, Real Estate 310, where students are able to buy all the, all the shows on DVDs or on two DVDs. So we're recording things. So one of the things, the reasons why I want to mention that is when I talk, some of the times I'm going to try not to date stamp things. So I won't say that it's Tuesday or Thursday or Friday or Saturday or whatever day or in the morning or the afternoon. It's because if I say the temperature is hot or cold and people sitting there and going, wait a minute, this is January and it's freezing outside, what is he talking about? So I won't be date stamping him. Uh, what we did have today is we had a, an orientation. Uh, we have two orientations today for three of the classes that I teach on TV or online. We had an orientation, and it took place in LR105, which is the Learning Resource Center on the first floor. Uh, we had uh, The reason why we have two orientations is because we have people, especially during this broadcast time, that are maybe working. And what they do is they cannot necessarily make it to the time that we brought, you know, we did the orientation this morning. So we have another one this afternoon. The one this afternoon will be from 4 to 5 o'clock. And the things that we cover during that orientation are more of the technology standpoint, how you watch the videos, how we use the Blackboard system, how we deliver the courses, the video, how to watch the video. All that stuff is covered th during those classes. And the orientation actually services three classes that I teach. Real Estate 300, which is going to be live tonight for the first, like we are now from uh, 5.30 to 6.30. This class, which is Real Estate 320, is which is uh, live right now. And then we're also doing Real Estate 310, which now we have as an online class where all the video and everything is already done for it. So anyway, we did an orientation for that, and we do another one this evening. What I want to do now is uh, just mention that if any time during the uh, show, I'm going to mention to Bob that he's going to be putting up a phone number here in a minute, hopefully, which will be a call. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We won't put the phone number up. Okay. Uh, never mind. Anyway, um, I guess I, I have to keep remembering that we're canning these things. Anyway, what I want to do now is uh, I want to spend a little bit of time today talking about a course overview or about this specific class. So unlike the orientation I did this morning where I was talking about how to use Blackboard, how to watch the video, how to do all that kind of stuff, I'm going to talk more about what's in this particular class. And again, if you did, weren't there for the morning orientation, the, we'll have it again this afternoon, okay? Uh, what will happen is uh, that you probably from this morning, you all got a copy of the course uh, outline, if you will. Some people call it a course syllabus. What I'm going to be doing is uh, I have it up here on the plasma screen, and Bob's going to be kind of bringing it up, and then we're going to go back and forth with it a little bit so you can hopefully see it at home. Uh, what I want to do is I'm not going to go through every single solitary thing, but I want to point out some things that I think are important. Then I'm going to talk about the chapters that are in the book. I'm going to talk about you know what we're going to be talking about, the course materials itself. And then uh, basically after we get done with that, if I have some time, we're going to do a little bit of a sample video and show you how, what it looks like. As again, uh, on the uh, TV set you can see here, we're talking about this is Real Estate 320, uh, Real Estate Finance. It's the instructional television class. By the way, the dates and the times that are on here, let me just mention to you that those dates and times are based on when we're initially giving the class. 
if you're watching this later on in the fall or the spring or some other year, the dates would be different. And this is always going to be on the Blackboard website. Uh, a couple things that I wanted to mention in here. Usually in these syllabuses, it'll have a, a, the actual uh, course title. It'll have my phone number where you can uh, contact me. Let me see if I can make sure. As I mentioned during the course orientation, even so I give you the phone number, don't call me. Uh, the reason why, and I'm not trying try to get your attention, the best way to get in contact with me is via email. And the reason why is because, as I mentioned today during the orientation, a lot of us have cell phones and they just break up and I can't hear them on the other end. If you send me an email, I will respond back to you. I check my email seven days a week, even on the weekends or whatever, and mainly because I don't want to come in on Monday and see a bunch of emails. Okay? Also in here, and my course layouts are the same, is you'll have the, uh, the title of the book, which is right here, which is in your course outline. And uh, basically, I talk about the class schedule for right now for this particular class. But again, in future classes, it'll be a little bit different. But in this class right now, we're broadcast from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock here in LR119. There, and I'll be covering it in a minute. There are a lot of different ways that you can watch the class. As soon as we get done with this class, probably no more than 10, 15, 20 minutes after the class, Bob Bickley, who is our senior engineer, takes a copy of this class that's on a VHS tape and takes it over to the, across the hallway to the library where you can go in and watch it anytime you want. So that's one of the ways that if you just happen to be on campus, you want to watch it, you want to take a look at it, and you said, I missed the class, it's always over there. And it really has to do with personal preference. I go over there and students, I just see them watching it, okay? A um, couple other things that I want to point out here. This class is, uh, is a three-unit class, and uh, one, it's one of the classes that you can use for your real estate sales license, okay, because you're required to have three classes to get your full license, which is real estate principles, real estate practice, and then one other class. So real estate finance happens to be one of the one that you can choose. Or if you're going to eventually get a real estate broker's license, this class can be one of those eight classes you need for a real estate broker's license. Okay. The course description, I'll just kind of read it here. It says, this course covers the real estate financing, lending policies, and problems financing transactions of residential, apartment, commercial, and special purpose properties. I think the easiest way I can sort of explain this is that Real estate is, is very sort of unique in the sense that uh, it's not where we can go out and write a check and pay for the house. Most of us are having to go out and finance property when we buy it because especially like in the Sacramento area, we may be talking about something that's if it's a small condominium, it might be 150000 and we can go up to millions of dollars, and a lot of us don't have that money in our back pocket to walk around with and, and buy. So what we're doing is, is financing is key. If interest rates are high, the demand for real estate goes down because not as many people can afford to buy property. If interest rates, uh, I mean, if they go up, people can't afford it. If the interest rates go down, there's more of a demand. Uh, it's the same old thing I was telling classes the other night. You know, if I took any one of these classes and said at 4%, all of you could afford to buy a $200,000 house, there'd be no problem. If I raise the interest rate from 4 to 4 i I'm going to lose a few people. If I raise it to five, I'm going to lose a few more. If I raise it to six, I'm going to lose more. What essentially do, happens is if I continue to raise the interest rate, which is how people can afford to make payments, eventually what's going to happen is I'll raise them so high that nobody can, nobody can buy anything, and the market just comes to a standstill. And then what people have to do is if they want to sell, they have no other choice to do something called lower the price of their house so that the person that couldn't afford it at, at 6%, couldn't afford to pay $300,000 for the house, could afford 
to buy the house at 6% for 250000 So you have to lower your price so that the payments are the same for the people. Okay? So talk about that. Now, as far as the show goes, one of the things that I mentioned in here, and I'll, I'll do this again in the orientation, is that there's a number, a number of uh, people say, what do you need to do for the class, this particular class? A couple things. The order in which it goes is, first of all, we have the orientation that you attend. And that's really, really sort of mandatory because what we want to do is make sure that you're fully informed about what's going on. So you don't go in, you know, a couple of weeks later and say, well, how do you get and watch the video? How do you do, you know, when is the course, exams, whatever. Okay, we want to make sure you're informed. Uh, as far as watch the television program, you can watch it in several different ways. In your course outline, if you have cable, it is broadcast over Comcast and SureWest, and I have the channels in there that it's broadcast on. It's broadcast live while we're doing it, and it's also rebroadcast on the weekends. And that changes from weekend to weekend, or changes from semester to semester. But essentially, what that means is, is that if you if you were out of town and said, "Uh oh, I missed the class," and you had cable, you could go back and you could watch the show, which would be rebroadcast the following week. So it's kind of like set up so that if you miss it. You can also TiVo it or record it on a VCR or whatever. The other thing that I want to mention is that, uh, as we talked about during the orientation today, you can watch it on the Internet. All uh, What will happen is as we do the shows, when we get done today, it will be encoded, and then what will happen is as soon as I've been told that it's up on the, uh, on the site, I'll be sending you an email and let you know that it's available. What that essentially means is that you can watch the show 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whenever it's convenient for you. We're also putting audio up there so that if you want to just listen to the audio portion of the show, you can. And we're talking about using a device like an MP3 player, like an iPod, something like that. If you see people walking around with those little bugs in their ear, dancing along, what it is is that's an iPod or some kind of an MP3 player. The song, the stuff is going to be available for you to put on your iPod and walk around with, okay? So that's another way uh, that you can watch it. A uh, couple other things is that we also have some outreach centers. We have one in Davis, we have one in West Sacramento, and we have one downtown. And the concept there is if you're in an outlying area and you want to go and watch the show there, you can do that. Okay, you just need to let them know, and I have that in the, um, in the course outline. Okay, uh, we did talk about the orientation. In the orientation, we are going to have three exams. We're going to have a first midterm exam, a second midterm exam, and a final and it's always going to be five chapters at a time. So in your case, it'll be like the first five chapters, then you have an exam. Second five chapters, you have an exam. And then the final, you'll have an exam. So it won't be like a whole big comprehensive final. Okay. Um, let me see what else we need to do. I have in here the link to Blackboard, which is right here, okay, to get to Blackboard. And uh, just going down here, I explained in here how you use Blackboard. And uh, talk about the streaming. I'm just going down the bottom here. These are the outreach centers. Uh, what the outreach centers are, the concept here is that you can go there and, uh, like we've had people in Davis, downtown, uh, Sacramento, 4th and L Street, West Sacramento, that just say it's more convenient for me to go to that location than it is to come here. Fine, not a problem, you can watch it, okay? Um, and I give you the addresses, and what's important about the addresses is that you also call and let them know that you're going to come. Because the reason why is because you may, even if you're just one person, that service is available to you, but they need to know to have somebody there to open the door and let you in kind of a thing, okay? Because if nobody comes, they just say, okay, nobody's here. Then, of course, this is the grading structure. Uh, we have a first midterm here, which is worth 100 points, a second midterm, which is worth 100 points, a final exam, 
And I didn't change this this time, so I'm just going to give this. I usually have attendance that people do, but we're not going to have attendance this time, okay? And I'm going to give you these points. I didn't have a chance to get finished cleaning all that up, okay? So you're mainly going to be worried about your first midterm exam, your second midterm exam, and your final. That's what you're responsible for doing, okay? Okay? All right. And then this gives you what an A, B, C, D, and an F is, okay? And then this basically here is the schedule. And what I've done as hard as I can is I've put down the days that we're going to be meeting. And so this is revolving mainly around when we have the broadcast. So we say 22nd, you know, or that, that particular day, and I tell you what topic we're going to basically cover that day. Now, there's a good possibility as the semester goes on that I may be doing a topic, and we may also, if I'm fortunate enough, I may occasionally bring in a guest speaker during that period of time. And usually when we do guest speaking type things, we usually do it like a, like a, like a talk show where I bring the speaker in and we, we talk, and it might be about real estate financing or real estate appraisal or whatever. And so I just have to line that kind of talent up. And when I do, I'll let you know that we're going to have somebody and what the date and the time is and everything like that. Okay? All right, so I'm going to move from there to here, which is going to be the uh, presentation. This is going to talk about, let me see, let me just go back here. This is going to talk about uh, mainly the topics that are in the book, okay? And so what I want to do is spend a little bit of time about talking about what we're going to be covering during the course. Uh, first of all, as you can see, this is Real Estate 320, Real Estate Finance, and I'm the instructor. And uh, the first thing that we're going to be talking about when we talk about, which the, the book calls Chapter 1, is we're going to be talking about the history of finance. The reason why it becomes important that we understand that is, is, is you know, why we understand the history of it and why, where we were and where we are today and what kinds of things that we've put in, mo and put in motion is because it gives a better perspective of how things work. When you really think about it, prior to us ever having any kind of monetary system, if we didn't have money, what that would mean is that every time we wanted to have a good or a service, we would have to go out and find somebody that we could exchange that service with. In other words, we'd have to have a bartering system. So, for example, if I wanted somebody to fix my car, and uh, I would have to have a service that I could provide to them if we didn't have money. So if I said I want my car fixed, and maybe I'm a house painter, I'd say I'll paint your house if you fix my car. We had no way of we have no way of exchanging anything. We have no central medium of exchange, and historically we've had to do that over the years. We've had to take and figure out some way that we can come up with some kind of money that we can say, listen, we're going to put a price on it. The value of uh, you fixing the car or fixing the car for me is hundred dollars. What I'll do is I'll give you hundred dollars. You can take that money and now you can go out and buy something else with it. Uh, the money is very, very important. And in this chapter, they talk about a number of different things. They talk about just money in general. They talk about how it, it got started, you know, uh, you know, how people, like, for example, the banking system had to do with where they had somebody called goldsmiths, where you actually put your gold, you stored it, they kept it safe. And then what happened is those goldsmiths, after a while, turned around and said, you know what, what about if we lend some money out? So that started to creating a banking system, you know, where people could come borrow money and pay interest and stuff. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about something called the Federal Reserve. And uh, I'm sure a lot of you have heard about the Federal Reserve uh, system. Uh, it's constant in the news. Every time you hear that interest rates are going up, it's because the Federal Reserve has met. 
They're uh, a part of the government. The person that's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, his name is Bert Bernanke. He's just been elected or been appointed to, to that position. It was Alan Greenspan. What they do is they have 12 financial districts, if you will, throughout the United States. And what those districts do is they hopefully represent well enough the constituency or the people that are in that area. In other words, you know, the people that are more or less in the northeast or the southeast or, or the west. So you find that the, the areas are larger in the west because there's more open land. But the concept behind it is that those people represent that area, and then they all meet, and then they try to figure out what's happening with the economy and then what needs to happen to the interest rates. And typically what happens is, is that if they think that things that there's a lot of money in our pocket and things start to cost a lot more money all of a sudden, you know, like housing prices start to go up higher and higher and we're paying more for cars and things, they say, wait a minute, that's called inflation. In order for us to stop inflation, what we basically need to do is we need to do something to take the money out of the people's pockets, and what they do is they raise the interest rates. So essentially we'll talk about how that basically works. And the Federal Reserve is responsible for uh, covering what we call the money supply. So they're responsible for things like, uh, you know, you have to think of money as being a commodity. In other words, it's like a pot of money available. There are a lot of people that need that money. And so what you basically do is is that you uh, the Federal Reserve is responsible for how big, at least in this country, how big that pot of money is. And they use a lot of different ways of adding or creating more money or taking money away. And we'll talk about that. Very, very important. It's important that you watch that because it's, it's very important as far as the real estate market goes uh, when you're dealing with a high dollar uh, item. The next thing is we're going to talk about the real estate cycle and the secondary market. Uh, one of the things that you need to kind of be aware of, especially if you're just entered into the real estate business, you probably in the last few years are used to the fact that uh, the interest rates were low, the housing prices were high. Uh, you really couldn't make a mistake in real estate. I mean, if you took a dart and threw it at a board with houses on it and just said, I'll buy the one, I'll buy the one, whichever one the dart hits, hold on to it for a year and sell it, you'd make money. I mean, you didn't need to have any kind of extensive amount of knowledge or anything. What, what, what it was is there was a demand. There were low interest rates, so a demand for housing. And what happened is the housing prices just kept going up and up and up and up and up. And what happens is is now, at least this time, the interest rates have gone up and the housing market has started to slow down. So say a couple years ago what was happening is that people were standing online. On weekends, they were camping outside of mobile, uh, model homes, hoping to even get an opportunity to put their name in a hat to get their so they get chosen to buy a house. That's what they were doing. That's what was happening. Now what's happening is that we're talking about people that are maybe losing their house to foreclosure. They're having to reduce their house prices. There's a lot of talk about how to stage your house so it looks nice when you sell it. Uh, all those things are going on. Why? Because the interest rates have gone up. Okay, So we go through a very cyclical, up-and-down type of industry, very, very cyclical. Cyclical means it goes up and down and up and down. We happen to be in an area now where the market is going down. Some people will say, is, there, is that a bad time to be in real estate? No. There's no such thing as a bad time to be in any market. It's just the fact that you have to learn what to do during that phase of the market. You, know, you may have to sit down if you're an agent with a, with a seller and say, I'm sorry, you're, you know, you're going to have to reduce your price or you're going to have to fix the place up or you're going to have to do something to make it look nice. A lot of builders right now are offering incentives for people to um, buy their houses. In some cases, the, a lot of the builders are having like a design, they have like a design center and they're saying, hey, you know what, here's $50,000, 
and credit, you go in and pick out all the upgrades you want. Why? Because they're trying to sell the houses. So you're seeing more incentives in that area. So the industry goes up and down. The other thing that we're going to talk about in this chapter is something called the secondary market. The secondary market is where we, you know, if you go down to a bank and you borrow money from the bank, and the only way I could sort of describe this that it makes any kind of sense is that if you were in a very small, itty-bitty little town, the kind of town I'm thinking about is years ago in a place up in, in the hills called Georgetown, where maybe they had one bank. It was Wells Fargo Bank. You know, and if you were a banker and you really stop and think about it, all the money that you got came from that town. In other words, people came in, deposited money in your bank, and then that was where the money came from that you lent money back out to the people. And what would happen is, is that if you really think about it, you know, people come in, they deposit $5,000, but they need a loan for $300,000 to buy a house. So you stop and you think, well, where do they get that, you know, where does the bank get that money from? You know, not that many people are, you know, are, are putting that much money into my bank. Well, what happens is what banks do is they go out and they make the loans to people. They put together these packages of loans, usually in blocks like maybe a million, two million, five million, ten million dollar blocks. And then you say, well, what am I going to do with it? Well, what they do is they turn around and take that block of mortgages, if you will, and they sell it on the secondary market. The secondary market of the organizations we hear called Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae. They sell it. Then they receive the proceeds, which hopefully contains some sort of profit, which replenishes their money again, and they can re, re um, lend it out again. The Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae have all really provided a lot of stability in the market because What's ended up happening, and I'll talk about this again, is that, you know, if you think about that one small little town, if anything happened in there, like a forest fire or a flood or anything, it could wipe the whole town out. And so the risk that the bank has is huge. But when you take those loans and sell them on the secondary market and everybody's investing in them, you spread the risk amongst a lot of people. So it adds more stability to the secondary market. Okay? Also, the secondary market provides guidance and rules to follow so the mortgages are all look the same or the, the loans do. So we'll talk about that. Next thing is we'll talk about the sources of funds in the primary and secondary market. I think I sort of touched on that a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about um, types of lenders that you may have. You're used to a commercial bank, but there are other kinds of lenders that you may not be able to go to as an individual and get a loan, but there are people that are lending money on like things like uh, uh, apartment buildings, shopping centers, for example. If you uh, open the newspaper up, you'll hear of maybe somebody called CalPERS. CalPERS happens to be the California Public Employees Retirement System. It's a pension plan. Those people invest in stocks and bonds and mutual funds and a lot of different things. One of the things that they invest in is real estate. They make loans, but not small loans. They make big loans, like you would go to them if you had a shopping center to borrow money. That's who you would go to, some huge organization. Um, So we'll talk about... uh, those different kinds of lenders, uh, real estate investment trusts, things like that in that particular chapter, so you're aware of what they happen to be. Uh, the next thing is talking about the secondary market, and we're talking about uh, um, uh, we're talking about uh, I'm trying to think secondary market and the different types of federal institutions that are involved in the secondary market, like the Farm Bureau. There's a lot of different kinds of loans that you can get besides just for residential and commercial property. And uh, we're going to talk about our federal regulation and consumer protection. This becomes very, very important. Uh, what had happened um, uh, many, many years ago is that 
there was a lot of uh, discrimination in the area of housing. Actually, in a lot of cases, lenders would sit in the back room of a bank and take a pen and draw lines around areas where they did not want to lend. And typically, those areas where they didn't want to lend was because there was a higher risk of people maybe defaulting on their loans. That sounds okay. That sounds okay as a business risk. But the other problem associated with it is that you end up discriminating against certain types of people because typically you have to take that to the next couple degrees and find out that those people that usually live in those areas are usually maybe the first time they're in the country or the second, you know, the second generation in the country. They don't have, they're not as well educated as the other people are. They're working in low income earning types of jobs. Uh, they're working two and three jobs. Uh, if they lose one job, you know, the chances of them losing the house or defaulting are pretty high. But what the federal government said, no, you can't do that. You can't discriminate against those areas. So we're going to talk more about that, you know, what those laws happen to be, what you have to disclose to people, uh, uh, what those organizations do. In other words, what kind of reporting do they do? And for them to stay in business, they have to report how they're servicing those communities. They have to say, this is how many loans we're making. We're not discriminating. We're trying to help that particular area. So it's very, very important that you're aware of that. Okay, uh, next thing is going to be state regulation of lending. Uh, we have, we have uh, if you will, we have federal... Um, we have federal regulation and we have state regulation. There's two, actually, there's two different types of banks. There's banks that are chartered by the federal government and there's banks that are chartered by the state government. And they're two different, if you will, two different sets of laws that you basically have to follow. So we'll talk about the state regulation of lending. I'm just taking a look here at the, the book. Uh, some of the things that we're going to talk about also during that period of time is things like deeds, different types of deeds. We'll talk about grant deeds, quick claim deeds, sheriff's deeds. In other words, what is it that you're buying? What kind of property is it? That kind of a thing. So we're going to be talking about that. Also be talking about mortgages. What a mortgage is, mortgage versus deed of trust. Okay. Um, finance instruments. Okay. This is probably one of the very, very important areas, uh, you know, that we need to distinguish, especially in California, of how we do business. We use the term mortgage all the time. In fact, if you go out, you'll talk about, you know, and you drive around town, you'll see signs that'll say Viatech mortgage, countrywide, not countrywide mortgage, but you know, you'll hear the term mortgage, 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 mortgage. We do not use mortgages in the state of California. Almost don't you, none of us do. What we basically do is a mortgage is a two-party instrument. It has somebody that borrows money and somebody that lends money. What happens with a mortgage is that in the event that the person that borrows the money does not make a payment on it, there's a period of time that goes by, and then what ends up happening is the lender starts a foreclosure procedure. Typically, when that happens is you're talking about going with a mortgage to a court of law. You're asking a judge to adjudicate or make decisions on the mortgage. You know, can the mortgage, you know, uh, and the process is a lot longer. In California... Uh, whatever number of years ago, we decided to use a different type of an instrument. We use something called a note and a deed of trust. Now, a note is a note, the two parts of the instrument. The note is basically where the bank, whoever's made the loan to you, sits down with you and, 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 and writes this note out. And the note typically will say, I, you know, in the note, I, Pat Hogarty, hereby promise to pay back the Bank of America 
the loan amount of $300,000 at uh, 6% interest rate starting on this date at this time and cover all the conditions. You know, what happens if I'm late with the payment, whatever. Okay, that's all contained within the note, and I signed that note. That note is private. It's between me and the lender. Nobody else sees that. But what has to happen is we have to have some way to secure that note because we're borrowing it to buy real estate. And I want to digress here for a minute. If you think about it, when you get ready to buy a car, you know, and you have to borrow money, if you really think about it, one of the things that happens is you have a thing called a pink slip. A pink slip shows that you have title to the car. What happens is when you borrow the money to buy the car, the pink slip is held with the bank. The bank continues to hold that pink slip until you pay that loan off. When you pay that loan off, then they turn around and usually a week or two weeks or three weeks later, you get a pink slip. What it is is by them holding the pink slip, they have the power to guess what? Call the repo guy out, get the tow truck out, tow the thing away, and repossess, repossess the car if you have to. In real estate, what we use is we use the deed of trust. This is a document that says that a note exists on the property. It's executed, signed, notarized, and everything else by the, by the person that borrows, but it's recorded. It's recorded at the county recorder's office. And what it does is it shows proof that, that there is a loan against the property. It notifies everybody, listen, there is a loan against this property. If you want to buy it, you need to, you know, you need to know that somebody owes some money on it, okay? Typically what ends up happening is, is that you continue to make the payments on the house, when you eventually pay it off, if that day ever happens to come, what will end up happening is that you will get, you will ask for from the lender something called a deed of reconveyance. They'll send that back to you. It'll be recorded, and you'll actually get the, the, the uh, deed of trust will be removed from the property. That happens in two cases. It happens, first of all, if you're in a situation where you're going to pay the house off, you're going to hold it for, you know, like 30 years and pay it off. Or if you refinance, if you refinance the house, the new loan pays off the existing loan, you get the deed of trust back. Okay. So, and what happens is, is that deed of trust represents rights. It was, it has what we call bare naked title that's vested with somebody called the trustee. The trustee is the person that has the right in the event that the borrower does not pay the money, that the lender can turn around and sell the property. So we'll talk about how that process works. If you hear about people talking about foreclosure sales, looking at foreclosures, trying to buy foreclosures, the way that they even know about them is because the people have defaulted on the loan. There's been a notice posted at the county recorder's office that said, you know, the, the property's in default. So we'll talk about how that process works. Uh, next thing is we're going to talk about the overall, uh, if you will, loan process. And what's important about this is for you, and I, when I say you, I more or less think about the fact that you're going to be in a position as either a real estate agent or a broker or some professional within the industry that you're helping somebody finance their property. So what becomes important is that you understand what that process is. In other words, where do things start and where do they end? I mean, most generally what ends up happening is, is that somebody decides that they want to borrow money, what they do, and they go to a lender. Now, they may have gotten to that lender in a lot of different ways. Maybe if you're the real estate agent, it's a lender that you know that you've put them in contact with. Put them on the phone and say, here, talk to Pat Hogarty. He wants to borrow some money. Okay? Or it could have been you went down to your local bank and talked to them, whatever. But what you do is you have something called an application process. During that application process, which we'll go over, is going to be, get all the financial information, how much money you owe, how much money you earn, 
uh, what bills you have, all that stuff. What's going to happen is once you fill out that, uh, that, if you will, that application, then what's going to happen is somebody's going to take a look at it, and they're going to start looking at a couple things. They're going to verify that you actually make what you say you make because they're going to ask you to give, like, W-2 statements or maybe even in some cases income tax statements. They're also going to look at your credit score. Very, very important. So credit scores are very important because, you know, if your credit score is not very good, you're going to pay a higher rate of interest. There's no getting around it. That's why you want to be really careful of it. That's why when somebody tells you and says, don't worry about it, file bankruptcy, no problem. You can get a loan. Yeah, you can get a loan, but you're going to pay, you know, you know, 12, 13, 14%. You can always get somebody to lend you money, but it's going to be at a higher rate of interest. So anyway, there's kind of an, like an initial approval process. Then the second phase of that is what, what they'll do is they'll gather the data, and then they'll actually start doing things like maybe going out and doing appraisals on the property, you know, taking a look and making sure the property is worth what they say it's going to be. And then after that, once you're approved, then basically what's going to end up happening is there's a loan package that's created, goes to an underwriter. Once that is approved, then your client or you are going to go to the escrow company. You're going to sign all the documents that are required. They're going to take a look at them. And then what will end up happening on the day that you close the transaction, you'll close it. The funds will be moved into your account. Your deeds will be recorded and everything will be paid off and you'll have your new house. So we'll talk about what that process really is because it's important you understand what's involved and your clients do too. Uh, we're going to talk again something about conventional financing. Typically uh, in the past, a lot of uh, people that initially bought homes would use government programs. I know I did. My first loan was a VA loan. Okay, I think I used the VA loan a couple times. I think I used FHA a couple times. It was mainly, you know, uh, government types of underwriting programs, which we'll talk about in a minute. Conventional financing, on the other hand, is where you're actually going down to the bank, you're getting a loan, and uh, as long as you put down, uh, uh, you know, you put down at least 20% or more, typically, all you have to worry about is paying the regular principal interest taxes and insurance payments. If, on the other hand, you put less than 20% down, you have to pay something called PMI, which is private mortgage insurance, which we'll talk about. There are different kinds of loans that are, being invo uh, that are involved as far as conventional financing goes. Typically or historically, we're used to the fact of having a 30-year loan, amortized, meaning every month we make a payment, and that payment pays principal and interest with the idea in the, in the beginning we're paying a lot of interest and very little principal. And near the end of the loan, we're paying a lot of principal and very little interest. And what happens is we go for either 10, 15, 20, or 30 years, and we pay the loan off. But then there are a lot of other programs out there. There are interest-only programs. There are 40-year loan programs. There are 15-year programs. There are now, because people my age are getting older, there are things called reverse mortgages. You'll see, you go and you see Wells Fargo Bank is one of the biggest pushers of this. They have great big signs and banners on the outside, reverse mortgages. That essentially what that is is that they say, you know what, there's people that are getting older, you know, that are maybe in their 60s or 70s, and the only asset they really have is their house. And they have don't make enough money because they don't have, you know, a good pension or retirement plan, or maybe they're living on Social Security. Well, what they can do is it allows them to borrow money against their house, so that they get income coming from their house. That's the reverse mortgage. And there's, there's a lot of intricacies to that, but that's another kind of financing that you run into. Those programs are also not only conventional, but they're underwritten by both uh, by government organizations, like FHA has a program. Um, the next thing we're going to talk about is something called alternative financing. I'm just kind of re, uh, keeping up with the, uh, 
book. Alternative basically means that we're going to talk about such things as adjustable rate mortgages. Adjustable rate mortgages have to do with the fact that, and the way you have to think about it is like this. If I'm a lender, even yourself, think about it. If you're a lender and you're sitting there and you're having to lend somebody some money and you're having to set an interest rate, you know, what the monthly payments are, and you're having to look 30 years ahead of time, you know, to all the ups and downs in the market, you're going, wow, that's a that's a big decision. You know, what should I charge them? Five percent, six percent. What happens if the interest rates go up and I'm not, I can't get enough money, I can't pay enough uh, interest to depositors to get money. I'm in trouble. So what happens is with adjustable rate mortgages, do and they come in all different sizes and shapes. I mean, you have six month, one year, uh, uh, three years, five years, seven years, ten years. What it means is that how long is that loan going to be fixed at that payment before it'll change or adjust? And so we need to talk about things like how does that happen, uh, what did they use, how do they go about making the decision, what are indexes. But the concept is, is that it reduces the risk to the lender because what the lender does is instead of having to look out for 30 years to make a decision, they only have to look out for three, four, or five years. And when they do that, they're going to charge the appropriate interest rate. Like they'll say, okay, okay, I'll lend you the money at 4% for six months because I can see six months, you know. But if you want to borrow the money for a year, guess what? I'm not going to charge you 4%. I'm going to charge you 5 If you want it for three years, I'll charge you 6 So, in other words, the longer the period of time that they have to go to make that decision, the higher the interest rates are going to be. We're also going to talk about some other things, such as points, so we have an understanding of that, of what a point is. A point is 1% of the loan, but we're going to find, figure out what all that means. We're going to talk about annual percentage rates and also buy-downs where you're going to actually go in there and maybe you give them some money to get your interest rate to come down. That's a buy-down. Uh, typically, buy-downs will usually be from maybe the builder wants to sell the house. So what they'll do is they'll say, we'll buy your interest rate down. We'll give the lender enough money to move your interest rate from 7% to 6% or 6.5%, so your monthly payments are lower. So we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, next thing we're going to talk about is government programs, okay? And there are lots of government programs. The How popular they happen to be is really dependent upon the marketplace. At one time, anybody, including myself, that was getting ready to buy their first house was using an FHA or a VA loan or something like that. The reason why is because the interest rates on the conventional loans were much higher. What happened is, is now the conventional loans have gotten to be more competitive, and as a result, more and they're easier to get in some cases because there's less theoretical paperwork, which is not necessarily true. But because of that, what's happened is people will go with conventional versus FHA and VA. Okay, but FHA is a Federal Housing Administration program. The FHA program was started in 1934, and we'll talk about this. The whole concept of the FHA program was to provide stability for the marketplace to do an insurance to say, hey, you know what, if that guy or that gal or that couple does not make payments, we'll take the house back. We will guarantee the lender that they're going to get their money. We'll do that. Of course, you as a borrower are going to pay for that, but they'll guarantee it. The other thing that FHA did, too, is they provided a stable 30-year mortgage. In other words, where it was 30 years amortized, it was Prior to the Great Depression in 1929, what happened was is that people would borrow money in short-term short-term loans for three years, five years, 
And what would happen is they'd make the payments, but they'd never pay anything off. At the end of the time, they'd still owe $10,000 on the farm. You know, they'd reborrow again. Ten years later, they'd still owe $10,000. So FHA brought in the concept, if you will, of an amortized loan. You're going to pay a certain amount of money, and every month you're going to pay some of that principal down. Okay, so that's FHA. <coughs> Via FHA, any of us are eligible to apply for an FHA loan. Anybody. There's no no requirements. You have to be in the service or live in California or anything like that. Anybody can. VA, Veterans Administration, on the other hand, is a program that we'll talk about which is applicable to people that have been in the military service. And there are periods of time in which they happen to be eligible. You know, there's a period of time that covers the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, you know, all of those things. And so we'll talk about what they happen to be. But the difference is, is that VA, the idea was, is, hey, we've got these veterans returning from overseas. They've fought for our country. They have, maybe don't have a lot of money. They need to, you know, they need to buy a house. In fact, as a result of World War II, what we did is we had two major things that came out of there. We had a VA that would help us buy property, like I did. And we also had something called the GI Bill of Rights, which allowed us to go back to college and get, and get college education. Okay, which they couldn't do before. And a lot of vets during that period of time took advantage of that. So we'll talk about those programs and what those requirements are. The other thing is, too, is that in California, you have a program called CalVet, California Veterans Administration. By the way, all of these places, and I'll show you as we go throughout the course, have websites that you can go and find out all kinds of information. In the case of CalVet, you can actually go there and fill out this thing and find out if you're qualified and can do it. CalVet, though, is a program... Which is interesting, when I came to California, and I came to California as a result of being in the military service, uh, when I first came here, even so I was a veteran because I had not entered the military through California, I couldn't get, I couldn't use the loan. I'm talking years ago, okay, because I was in the service when a lot of you weren't even born, you know. But what happened is over the years they said, you know what, we're going to allow veterans that, you know, maybe have moved here from other states. What CalVet essentially does is that they lend the money they are one of the few institutions that does not use a deed of trust when they lend the money. They use something called a land contract. That's the one place you see a land contract. What it is is essentially, to make it simple, is that CalVet buys the house. You make payments on the ha to them, and at the end of the period of time when it's paid off, they deed the house to you. Okay, so they use that's that program. <clears throat> and we'll talk about this CalVet also. Uh, gets its funds that they use to lend money and operate. They get that through uh, bond issues. So when you go to vote at the polls, you may see a little initiative on there that will say something about California bond issue for vets. That bond issue is giving uh, CalVet the authorization to sell bonds to the investment public who gives them money. They pay interest, and that's the money they use to lend money out. So they're actually creating the, you know, actually creating the money and to run their administration portion of their business. So we'll talk about that. Uh, seller financing. Seller financing is um, something that a lot of people have a difficult time sort of understanding because you basically haven't lived through this. Uh, when I first was, I think the first time I ever got involved with real estate, I bought my first house in 1974, 72, okay? Uh, so I've been through a lot of different cycles. Uh, when I was first in the real estate business was in 1979, and what happened during that period of time in the 70s were really well known for a couple things. Number one, we had a huge gas crisis, which interestingly enough, do we have a huge gas crisis again? Yeah. Um, 
it was kind of funny because we went through that. We all downsized the cars. We got little cars, little trucks. We actually even changed the parking lot, you know, parking lots in, in, where you would, you know, go to shop. You know, the spaces were smaller because the cars were smaller, like you'd see in Europe and some of the other countries. And then what happened is they turned the valve back on again. We could get gas. The prices went down, and now we have the great big, you know, uh, Hummers and all those other things, you know, that get, you know, terrible gas mileage. And we're going through the same, you know, history more or less repeats itself. But during that period of time in the late 70s, we actually had where the interest rates, one of the biggest problems they were trying to fight were inflation. We had uh, somebody that was in in, uh, the Federal Reserve chairman at the time. His name was Paul Volcker. And one of the things that they did is they continued to raise interest rates. And the interest rates got to the point that I remember one day sitting in a bank and they were at 22%. And I worked for a title insurance company and we were doing for, we were foreclosing on property. Uh, contractors couldn't afford to hold on to them. I mean, whole subdivisions, whole entire subdivisions, just board them up and take them back. Uh, places up in Tahoe Keys, like Tahoe Keys, really expensive property right on the water, just foreclosed on them because people couldn't afford them. The interest rates were so high. And what happened is, is that one of the things that happened is, is that there were some people that had had loans that had attractive interest rates. In other words, they had lived in the house for a number of years, and their interest rate wasn't as high. So people would go, you know what, why don't we just let somebody take the loan over? We'll let them assume our loan. And there was a huge controversy that went on during that period of time, which we'll talk about. And a lot of people got very creative on how we were going to finance stuff. So you ended up having people that would maybe allow, take over somebody else's loan. The seller would turn around and carry the financing. And you may say, well, why in the world would they do that? It doesn't make any sense. Well, the fact is, is they still needed to sell the house. They had to sell. I mean, when you think about it, people still need to buy and sell houses. Well, what happened is, is they need to sell the house and they had no other choice. So they would turn around and say, I'll carry the loan. I'll carry my equity in the form of a loan. So there was a lot of creative financing that went on during that period of time. So we'll talk about those different types of uh, self-financing things, all-inclusive notes and deeds of trust, take-back loans, land contracts, things like that. Um, Next thing we're going to talk about is qualifying the borrower. Uh, You're going to find out if you're an agent, especially with today's gas prices, before you put people in your car, that you're paying $3 and something a gallon for gas. And who knows down the road that, you know, it may be higher or lower in time to come. But you're not going to drive them all over town only to find out after you show them a bunch of houses and say, find out that they can't qualify to buy the house. They don't, you know, they're, you know, they don't make enough money. They, their interest rates are not very good or whatever. So you as, a, as an agent are going to one of the first things you're going to want to do when that person walks in the door on the weekend and says, I'd like to buy a house, one of the first things that you need to get done with them is to find out if they have if they can get a loan, qualify for a loan. And then that based on that, then you'll know what they can afford. It doesn't do any good to take somebody and say, oh, what would you like? Oh, well, we have a fairly large family, you know, so I four bedrooms, you know, three baths, four-car garage, and then you show them a bunch of houses that are eight, nine hundred thousand dollars. You take them around. They go, "Wow, that's great!" And then you go to show, you go to qualify them for the loan. You find out they only can afford, you know, two hundred thousand dollar house. Well, you've wasted your time, and you've actually affected them or wasted their time too. So the thing is, you just got to be honest with them and say, "You know what? Let's talk about, you know, what, you know, what you can realistically afford, you know, and get them qualified, and then get some kind of real proof from the lender that they're ready, willing, and able to fund that loan, and make sure it's really good proof. It's not just something." that somebody sends you an email and says, yeah, they have a turn in a loan application, I'll go ahead and give them a loan. No, you want to make sure that they qualify. 
And the good concept about that is that if you're qualified, when you go out psychologically to buy a house and you know that you can afford, that you can get a loan for three or 400000 or whatever it happens to be, when you walk around, you're walking around, you feel like you have that much money in your back pocket because you know you can borrow that. It's not like put the offer in and uh, hope that I can get the loan. It's no, you're, I'm qualified. You, know, you want 300000 I'm going to give you two fifty. I, I can make two fifty. I got the money. You want it? You know, so you, you, you're psychologically more geared up to work with that kind of uh, thing. And um, qualifying the property. Qualifying the property has to do with an appraisal. Uh, appraisal as an industry and as a field, which is something you can all go into, has gone through a lot of ups and downs. Uh, basically, uh, uh, trying to remember the dates, but basically we had a big fiasco years ago with the savings and loan where a lot of money was lent on a lot of properties only to find out that the properties were worth nowhere near the amount of money that it was lent on. Okay, We're sort of <coughs> going through this a little bit right now with uh, property. If you will, what's happening is is that the uh, you know the house that you bought two years ago for three hundred thousand dollars you can't sell for three hundred thousand dollars you know you can't because the market has contracted because a lot of the interest rates went up and there's fewer buyers so the question is is when that appraiser said it was worth three hundred thousand dollars were they lying you know and the truth of it is that they weren't what they did is they turned around and they looked at that property and they looked at what every other person was paying for property in the area and they said the value of this property, the market value of this property, based on what everybody else is paying for it, is, you know, $300,000, okay? The, the, the uh, appraisal industry has, is, has continuously uh, added additional requirements trying to make them stricter. You know, it used to be one time you could just go out and say, I'm an appraiser. Here's my sign. Call me if you need an appraisal. Now you need to be licensed by the state of California. If you want to do uh, properties that are going to have money lent on them that are going to be tied to anywhere along the federal government, you have to be licensed. You have to have, in order to get the license, you have to put in over 2,000 hours worth of time under a licensed real estate appraiser. Uh, you have to pass exams. You, you know, there's a lot of things. And the reason why is we want to make sure who's ever lending that money out or whoever is making that appraisal knows what they're talking about. Because when you really think about it, if you're a lender, you might be in your, your office might be in San Francisco or Los Angeles or God knows where, and you're, you're not out looking at the property. You are totally depending upon the value of that appraisal. You know? And you're saying, I'm going to lend 90% of the value of whatever that appraisal is. So you're totally ca- counting on that appraiser. So it's very, very important that you know how that works, how the appraisal process works, what kinds of appraisals they have. Most of the common ones that we utilize in the residential market are what we call the market approach. You use the market approach every day. You know, when you shop for anything, you know, you go out to buy milk, cookies, ice cream, whatever, you're shopping price, you're looking at the differences between products, you know, why should I buy this versus that? And so market approach is something that's very simple and not simple, but it's easy to understand. Conceptually, it's easy to understand. You know, if we go to buy a brand new car and we're looking at a Toyota and it's a Toyota Camry, we understand the concept. If we're looking and there's two cars and look almost identical and they're 50 or 100 feet away and we say to the sales guy, you know, what what are they selling for? And he says, well, the one on the right is 15,000 and the one on the left is 20. Next question out of your mouth is going to be why? What's the differences? Same thing in residential property or in market approach. You know, the difference is going to be caused by size of the property, 
Does it have a pool or no pool? What's its view? Stuff like that. It's understandable. A couple other approaches that we take is one is cost approach. Cost approach has to do with where we take a look at it and say, you know, there's not a lot of property out here that we can find that's identical to this. We can find land that's pretty close, but we can't find property. So what we're going to do is we're going to figure out what it would cost to build this building now, then take away all the depreciation that, you know, in other words, you know, how, you know, like it would cost, you know, in today's market it would cost, say, $400,000 to build. It's been in existence for 10 years. We'll knock off 50000 The property's worth 350000 There's a company called Marshall Swift that the appraisers used to come up with that data. We'll talk about that. And then finally there's an income approach. And an income approach, it's where you don't care what the other guy paid for it. It doesn't make any difference. You don't care what it costs to build. What you're concerned about is how much income does it generate. So an income approach is a lot utilized in things like apartment houses because you're saying, I don't care if it costs $50 million. It doesn't make any difference. How much rent am I going to get per month? What are my operating expenses? How much am I going to put in my pocket? If you're talking about a shopping center or an office building or mini warehouse or anything along that line, you're concerned about the income that's being thrown off from the property. That's your main concern. Now, in appraisal, we may use all three approaches. We may look at the market approach, we may look at the income approach, and we may look at the cost approach. What we'll do as an appraiser is we'll pick out whatever the best approach is that indicates the market value for the property. So we'll talk about what that is. And then finally, I think in as far as the book goes, uh, uh, what we're going to talk about is something called real estate mathematics. I've said this a lot in principles classes is that a lot of times when you enter the business, you really don't realize that one of the things, because especially like in principles, we talk about contracts. You don't realize that when you get in the real estate business that you're going to be dealing with, especially if you're an agent, creating contracts, listing agreements, purchase offers, all this kind of stuff. So that's one thing. But another thing you're going to be involved with is doing a math. And we're not talking about calculus or trigonometry or anything like that. We're talking about addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. But what's going to be important about it is this. When you are sitting down with a client, you know, you know the example I like to use is that, let's say you're working for a real estate company. The telephone rings. The person, you know, you answer the phone. They say, hi, my name is Jim Smith. I saw your sign down the street. It looks like you're pretty busy selling houses. I'd like to have you come out and take a look at my house. I want to sell my house. Okay? Okay. You go out there. You visit with them you know, maybe a day, a couple days later. You show up at their house. Maybe they give you a tour of the house, give you donuts, coffee, something. They give you something. You sit down at the kitchen table. Fifteen minutes into the conversation, no longer. The question they're going to ask you is this. How much can I sell this house for? Okay? In reality, whether they want to admit it or not, what they're doing is they're saying, how much am I going to get out of this house? Because what they're doing is they're saying, well, let me see, if I sell it for $300,000 and I pay off the mortgage and I pay off Uncle Harry and Aunt Mary, I'm going to end up with $5,000. So what they look at is they look at the sales price as being what they did. They argue about that, but they're really talking about the net. They need the net to figure out is a down payment to buy a car to do something else, Okay. So you're going to find yourself in real estate. You're going to be calculating all this stuff. Initially, you'll be doing something called an et sheet with them, you know, where you'll figure out what the sales price is, what the escrow fees are going to be, title fees are going to be, loans are going to be, whatever. You're going to do that. One of the things that you're going to be involved with is assisting them in mortgages, maybe not helping them apply for the mortgage, or maybe you will, but what you're going to be doing is calculating out what their payments are going to be, different, different rates. You're going to be sitting there talking to them and say, well, you know what, if you borrow... 
this, if you buy this house for this amount of money, for $300,000, and you put down 20%, your payments on a fixed-rate loan for 30 years are going to be this. And you're going to show them that. And then you're going to tell them the advantages and disadvantages of getting that loan. You know, your payments are higher, but you know it's predictable. You know it's always going to be the same, blah, blah, blah. Then you may sit there and talk to them about an interest-only loan and what the advantages and disadvantages of that are. And you're going to talk to them about, uh, you know, what happens if it's a buy-down. You know, you're going to go through all these different possible scenarios. Now, it might be one or two or three. One or two or three. And I don't know what that is. Uh, it's probably like a fire alarm. Okay. Should I cover the mic or? No, keep going. Okay. I don't know what that is. Okay. Um, I think we're done for today. So thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you back here the uh, the next time. Bye bye.